Hi, this is Sam. And this is Anuel. And this is Murderous Intention. Hey guys, so um, I know we missed last week, but we're making it up to you with a double feature. Um, now I'm a, we're gonna go straight into the case, and I'm gonna hand it over to Mr. Enuel. Um, okay, so first of all, I want to apologize because the reason we didn't do anything last week was because of me. Um, but you know, normal aches and pains and stuff like that. But anyway. Um, today I'm talking about Mary Bell, the 11-year-old serial killer. Um, and going right into it because it's kind of long and not wasting too much time. Um, Bell's mother, Elizabeth Betty Bell, was a well-known local prostitute who was often absent from the family home, frequently traveling to Glasgow to work and simply leaving her children in the care of their father. If he was present... Um, Mary was her second child, born when Betty herself was 17 years old. The identity of Mary's biological father is unknown for most of her life. Mary believes her father to be William Billy Bell, a violent alcoholic and habitual criminal with an arrest record for crimes including armed robbery. However, she was a baby when William Bell married her mother, and it is unknown if he is her actual biological father. <coughs> Excuse me. Mary was an unwanted and neglected child, according to her aunt, Isa Cricket. Within minutes of Mary's birth, her mother had resented hospital staff attempting to place her daughter in her arms, shouting, take the thing away from me. As a baby, toddler, and young child, Mary frequently suffered injuries and household accidents while alone with her mother, which led her family to believe that either her mother was deliberately ne neglected neglectful and or intentionally attempting to harm or kill her daughter. On one occasion in about 1960, Betty dropped her child from a first floor window. On another occasion, she piled her daughter um, she piled her daughter with sleeping pills. She is also known to have once sold married to a mentally unstable woman who was unable to have children of her own resulting in her older sister, Catherine, having to travel alone across Newcastle to reclaim Mary from this individual and return the child to her mother's home on White House Road. Despite her negligence and abuse of her children, Betty refused repeated offers from her family to take custody of Mary, whom she, as a dominatrix, is alleged to have begun allowing and are encouraging several of her clients to sexual abuse in... I can't say that word. Sadomachistic sessions by the mid-1960s. Yeah, I'm going to say it. I'm gonna, I think that's it. Um, both at home and at school, Mary exhibited numerous signs of disturbed and unpredictable behavior including sudden mood swings and chronic... Oh, that's sadomasochist. That's it. Thanks. Sorry. That's fine. 
Um, she's known to have frequently fought with other children, both boys and girls, and to have attempted to strangle or suffocate her classmates or playmates on several occasions. On one occasion, she is known to have attempted to block the trachea of a young girl with sand. His violent behavior made many children reluctant to socialize with Mary, who would frequently spend her free time with Norma Joyce, the 13-year-old daughter of a next-door neighbor. Although the girls shared the same surname, they were not related. According to one classmate at the Balia Road Junior School, by 1968, she and her peers had become accustomed to the sudden and marked changes in Mary's behavior. And when she began exhibiting distressful mannerisms, including shaking her head and forming a steely gaze, her peers instinctively knew she was to become violent with the force of her stare being the individual she would attack. So this can happen from the from the gap. Yeah. Um, just a heads up. If you guys hear some noises in the background, it is um, our lovely um, Bruno, and he's just trying to make himself known. Sorry. Like he always does. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So on Saturday, 11th May. On Saturday the 11th of May, 1968, a three-year-old boy was discovered wandering, dazed and bleeding in the vicinity of St. Margaret's Road, Scottswood. The child later informed police he had been playing with Mary Bell and Norma Bell atop a disused air raid shelter when one of the girls, a child who was unsure which, had pushed him seven feet from the roof to the ground inflicting a severe laceration to his head. The same evening, the parents of the three small girls contacted police to complain that both Mary and Norma had attempted to strangle their children as they played in the sandpit. That evening, both girls were interviewed about these incidents. Both girls denied any culpability for the air raid shelter incident, claiming they had simply discovered the boy bleeding heavily from a head wound after he had fallen. Further questioned the attempted strangulation of the three young girls. Mary denied any knowledge of the incident. However, Norma admitted Mary had tried to throttle each of the girls, stating, Mary went to one of the girls and said, What happens if you choke someone? Do they die? Then Mary put both hands around the girl's throat and squeezed. The girl started to go purple. I told Mary to stop, but she wouldn't. Then she put her hands around Pauline's throat and she started going purple as well. Another girl, Susan Cornish, came up and Mary did the same thing to her. Police notified the local authority of the incident and of Mary's violent nature, but due to the age, both girls were simply given a warning. No further actions were taken. That's weird. I'm like... And at the same time, not really. Huh? Like, you would think, I, I, don't, I know that there's not an arrest or anything like that, they're young girls, but just a warning is, seems too light, you know, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, no, I hear you, because I'm just like, wait, so we're just gonna, like, basically tell Mary, you know, 
oh, it's okay, you know, we get yeah. it, you're a child, you don't know no better. But apparently, she knew what she was doing if she saw that the first girl was turning purple, which means you're losing oxygen. Yeah. Then she does it to the next girl, and then she does it to another person. And yeah. all you're going to get told is, don't do that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That, yeah, that'll be like, okay, and I'm going to try some more and see how far I can get now. Now that I got your attention, let me see how far can we go till you right. say I had enough and you do something about it kind of ordeal. That's a bad Kool-Aid. Yeah. So in the 1960s, Newcastle upon Tyen experienced a significant urban renewal project. Many inner boroughs of the city saw Victoria ever terrace slums demolished in order that modern houses and flats could be constructed. Although several families decided in buildings earmarked for demolition as they awaited rehousing by the council. Local children frequently played in or close to the direct houses and upon the rubble shown expanses of land raised and partially cleared by contractors. One of these locations was a large expanse of waste ground located close to a railway line known to local children as the Tin Lizzie. The street which ran parallel to the expanse of waste ground was St. Margaret's Road. On the 25th of May, 1968, the day before her 11th birthday, Mary Bell strangled four-year-old Martin Brown in an upstairs bedroom of a dialect house located at 85 St. Margaret's Road. She is believed to have committed the crime alone. Brown's body was discovered by three children at approximately 3.30 p.m. He was lying on his back with his arms stretched above his head. Aside from specks of blood and foam around his mouth, no signs of violence were visible upon his body. A local workman named John Hall soon arrived on the, ski on the scene. He attempted to perform CPR to no avail. As Hall attempted CPR to local girls, 10-year-old Mary Bell, known locally as May, and a 13-year-old friend and neighbor, Norma Bell, appeared at the doorway to the bedroom. Both were quickly shoot out of the house. The two knocked on the door of Martin's aunt, a Miss Ray Finley, and informed her. Why would they knock on the house and let her... Anyway. I don't get that part, but anyway. Neither do I. I'm, it's very confusing, if you want to say. Yeah. And for, well, what they found out was one of your sisters had just had an accident. We think it's Martin, but we can't tell because there's blood all over him. The following day, Dr. Bernard Knight conducted postmortem upon the body of Martin Brown. Knight was unable to find any signs of violence on the child's body, and thus was unable to determine the cause, the child's cause of death. Mm -hmm. Although he was able to discount the investigators theory that child had been had died of poisoning, though, I'm me, poisoning through ingesting tablets. An inquest on the 7th of June returned an open verdict. 
On Mary's 11th birthday, the 26th of May, she and Norma broke into and vandalized a nursery in nearby Woodland Crescent. The two entered the premises by peeling tiles off the flat roof. They tore books, upturned desks, and smeared ink and poster paints um, poster paints about the property before escaping. The following day, staff discovered the break-in and, vand and vandalism and immediately notified the police, who also discovered four separate notes which claimed responsibility for Martin Brown's murder. One of these notes stated, I'm murdered so that I may come back. Another read, we did murder Martin Brown. Fuck off, that, you bastard. Uh, fuck off, you bastard. A third note simply read, fuck off, we murder. Watch out, Fanny and faggot. Oh, my God. The final note was the most complex reading. You are a mice. Why be cursed? We murder Martin. Go brown. You better lock. You better lock out. There are murders about by Fanny and faggots. You screws. I don't get what's all that about. And the spelling is kind of like really weird. So you kind of have to make it out. But you kind of get the gist of it. Yeah. Um, the police. Ah, these police, I swear to God. The police dismissed this incident as a tasteless and childless and childish prank. I didn't know evidence to murder was a childish prank. Okay. Two days, two days later, on the 29th of May, shortly before the funeral of Martin Brown, in a game of chicken, both girls called upon the house of his mother, June, asking to see her son. When June Brown replied that they couldn't see her son because he was deceived, Mary replied, Oh, I knew he's dead. I want to see him in his coffin. That is like Stone Cold sh sh Max. Yeah. distasteful at the least disrespectful at the most you know it's like ridiculous yeah so on the afternoon of the 31st of July 1968 a two-year-old named Brian Howe was last seen by his parents in the street outside his house playing with one of his siblings the family dog and Mary Bell and Norman Bell when he did not return home later that afternoon, excuse me, concerned relatives and neighbors searched the street without success. At 11.10 p.m., a search party discovered Brian's body between two large concrete blocks upon the Tim Lizzie. The first policeman to arrive on the scene observed that a deliberate or feeble attempt had been made to conceal the body, which was covered in clumps of grass and weeds. Um, Sanasis was evident upon the child's lips. Which I don't know what the heck that is. Um. Sanasis? 
Cyanosis. Okay. That sounds about right. Um, I, I, if I'm right, I think it's like probably bluing. Um. Okay, Cyanosis. A blush discoloration of the skin resulting yep. from poor circulation and inadequate oxygenation of the blood. Yeah, so basically right. bluing because of lack of oxygen. Sorry, I had to look that up. I'm like, what the heck is that? Anyway. So that was evident on upon the child's lips and several bruises and scratches were evident upon his neck. A pair of broken scissors lay close to his feet. The coroner would conclude that Brian had died of strangulation and that he had been deceased for up to seven and a half hours before the discovery of his body. The killer had evidently... No, I just said, oh, wow. Yeah. The killer had evidently squeezed Brian's nostrils closed with one hand as he or she had gripped his throat with the other. Numerous puncture wounds had been inflicted in the child's legs before death. Sections of his hair had been cut from his head. His genitals had been partially mutilated, and a crude attempt had been made to carve the initial M into his stomach. The relatively small amount of sweats used to murder the child led the coroner to conclude the murderer was another child. Numerous gray and maroon fibers were discovered upon Brian's clothing and shoes. These fibers did not source from any clothing within the Howard's household and had been transferred to the child by his murderers. Now, this was a four-year-old boy, if I remember correctly. No, excuse me, a three. Three. What the heck? Uh, How did you do all that to, to a poor three... I don't know. And then, how did they get a hold of this three years old? He was playing on the street with his brother, his dog, and the two. No, what I'm no, what I'm saying is, with the fact that he had his sibling and everybody else um, with him, like, how did they lure him away? You know. Like, my thing is, I just want to know, what did they say to get this little three years old away from his safety net to be able to do all this? I mean, a couple of things jumped to my mind right away. They knew, the kid knew them. Mm-hmm. They played together. They were in the same neighborhood. Um, but... When you started talking, the the thing that came most most relevant to my mind is, I think of your kids, mm-hmm. Sammy and Joey are playing outside. Yeah, Joey always got to get something to eat. He always got to go to the bathroom. He always there's always something that he got to go into the house for. Yeah, that's when they grab. It. You know what I'm saying? He True. Let's He probably told us, but I'll be right back. I gotta go use the bathroom or let me go grab us some snacks so we don't have to be going inside to eat we can sit outside and eat you know okay so that i can see where it's like that and then probably mary's 
when he when the brother left she probably was like oh hey i got you know i got some candy you want to share right yeah oh my god dear lord it's a three-year-old so candy sweets you know toys anything yeah okay so the investigation starts Mm mm-hmm so the discovery of Brian Howard's body sparked a l- large-scale manhunt. Over 100 detectives from across North Umberland were a- a- assigned to the investigation, and more than 1,200 children had been questioned with regard to the whereabouts by the 2nd of August. Two children questioned by, det- by detectives on the 1st of August were Mary Brown and Norma Bell. Excuse me, Mary Bell and Norma Bell. Whom, uh, really? Hmm? Okay. Whom went? I just lost my place a second. Um, who witnesses had already informed investigators had been seen playing with Brian shortly be- before he was believed to have died. In her initial interview, Norma. What the heck is going on here? Okay. Seen excitable, whereas Mary was remarkably more observant and tactical. Although both girls were evasive and contradictory in their initial statements, they freely admitted to having played with Brian on the date of his death, but denied having seen him after lunchtime. Question further the following day, Mary stated she remembers seeing an eight-year-old local boy playing with Brian on the afternoon of the 31st of July, and that she had also seen him hitting the child. Furthermore, she stated that she also remembered that the boy had been covered in grass and weeds as if he had been rolling in a field, and that he had in his possession a small pair of scissors. Mary then expounded, I saw him trying to cut a cat's tail off with the scissors, but there was something wrong with them. One leg was broken or bent. The self-incriminating statement convicts detectives, chief inspector, excuse me. The, sta- the self-incriminating statement convinced detective, chief, chief inspector James Dotson, that Mary was the actual killer. As only the police knew about the broken scissors found at the crime scene. In addition, the local boy she named was quickly questioned and was discovered to have been at Newcastle International Airport on the afternoon of the 31st of July, with numerous witnesses able to corroborate his parents' claims. She gave up way too much information way too quickly. Well, let's be honest. She's a child who's not... The brightest bulb. The sharpest tool in the, in the shed. It, that too. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> so, on the afternoon of the fourth um, of August, the parents of Norma Bell contacted police, stating that their daughter wished to confess what she knew of the death of Brian Howe. DCI Dobson arrived at their home, formally cautioned Nora. Excuse me, formally cautioned Norma 
then asked what she knew. Norma then informed Dobson Mary had taken her to a spot on the Tin Lizzie, at which point she had been shown Brian's body. Mary had then demonstrated to her how she had strangled the child, according to Norma. Mary had confessed to her she had enjoyed strangling the child before describing how she had inflicted the score marks to her stomach with the razor blade, which had been hidden at the crime scene, and the broken scissors. Norma then led police to the crime scene and revealed the location where the razor blade was hidden. A drawing Norma made of the wounds inflicted to the boy's abdomen precisely matched those described by the coroner. Mary Bell was visited at her home in the early hours of the 5th of August. On, the, on this occasion, she was notably defensive when confronted with the discrepancies in her previous statement. She informed detectives, you're trying to brainwash me. I will get a solicitor to get me out of this. Later the same day, Norma was questioned again. On this occasion, she made a full statement in which she admitted being present when Mary had actually strangled Brian. According to Norma, when the trio were alone on the Ten Lizzie, Mary seemed to go all funny, pushing her child into the grass and attempted to strangle him before stating to her, my hands are getting thick, take over. She had then run from the scene, leaving Mary alone with Brian. A forensic examination of clothing owned by both girls revealed that the gray fibers discovered upon Brian's body were precise match to a woolen dress worn by Mary. The maroon fibers upon the child's shoes were precise match to a skirt owned by Norma. Furthermore, the same gray fibers had also been found upon the body of Martin Brown. Uh oh. <laughs> they just put two and two together. Mm-hmm. So, um, Brian Howe was buried in a local cemetery on the 7th of August, 1968, in a ceremony attended by over 200 people. According to DCI Dobson, who had planned to arrest both girls later that day, Mary Bell stood outside the Howell household as a, children, as a child's coffin was brought from the home at the beginning of the funeral possession. Dobson later said that she stood there laughing, laughing and rubbing her hands. I thought, my God, I got to bring her in. She should do another one. Both girls were formally charged with the murder of Brian Howe at 8 p.m. that evening. In response to this charge, Mary replied, That's all right by me. No more bursts into tears simply proclaiming, I never, I'll pay you back for this. In the presence of an independent witness, Mary prepared a written statement in which she admitted to being present when Brian Howard was murdered, but insisting the murder had been committed by Norma. She had also admitted she and Norma had broken into the Woodland Crescent Nursery the day after the murder of Martin Brown, defacing the property before the two had written the four handwritten notes. Um, shortly after their arrest, both girls underwent psychological evaluations, the results of these tests revealed Norma was intellectually delayed and a submissive character who easily displayed emotion. Whereas Mary was a bright yet cunning character, prone to sudden mood swings. Occasionally, Mary was willing to talk, although she rapidly became sullen, introspective, and defensive in nature. The four psychiatrists who examined Mary conclude that 
although not suffering from a mental disorder, she suffered from a psychopathic personality disorder. In his official report compiled for the Director of Public Prosecution, Dr. David Westbury concluded, Mary's social techniques are primitive and take the form of automatic denial, manipulation, complaining, bullying, flight, or violence. The child Mary Bell and Norma Bell for the murders of Martin Brown and Brian Howe began at Newcastle on the 5th of December, 1968. Both girls were, tra were tried before Mr. Justice Ralph Cusack mm -hmm. and both pleaded not guilty to the charges. Mary was defended by Mr. Harvey Bobson, QC, Norma by R.P. Smith, QC. Against protests from both defense counsels on the first day of the trial, Cusack waived the defendant's right to anonymity on account of their age. As such, the media was allowed to publicize the names, ages, and photographs of both girls, who each sat alongside three close female police officers in the center of the courtroom, behind the legal representatives, and within all reach of their families throughout the duration of the trial. Now, let me ask you a question. Sure. If a child is under the age, as a minor, mm -hmm. obviously, why would they waive her anonymity or their anonymity, which means that they could go on newspapers like everybody would know who the murderers are. They're minors. They should not be, you know, like any lawyer working yeah. anything knows you keep that private. Anybody that comes into the courtroom that's allowed in the courtroom will know, but it's still hush-hush. I don't understand why they waive that. That's just, I guess, my parenting um, well, I don't know why they waived it, but to think about it, I'm like, well, at least we know that she was ever to come out, you know, we can be like, okay, well, I'm keeping my kid away from that cheek. And that's just me well, putting yeah. it in nicely. Yeah, I mean, but at the same time, I think it's, a, you know, like, if I was a parent, I'm like, what the heck are you doing? Mm -hmm. You know, because even though she yeah. seems guilty, everything is pointed against her, she's still innocent until proven guilty. True. Now, when she's guilty, you tell her, yeah, but you say she's guilty, you want to publicize it, that's something else. True. Just, uh, you know. Um, so, Rudolph Lyons QC opened the case on behalf of the, rep, uh, the prosecution at 11.30 a.m., in an opening statement lasting six hours. Damn, that's a long opening statement. Lions informed the jury they faced an unhappy and distressing task due to the nature of the murders and the ages of the defendants. He then outlined the prosecution's intentions to illustrate the similarities between both murders, which indicated both boys had been murdered by the same perpetrator or perpetrators. Lions outlined the circumstances surrounding both deaths and the evidence indicating indicting the defendant's guilt. Excuse me, evidence indicating the defendant's guilt. Although Lyons conceded his opening statement that despite the defendant's age difference, Mary was the more dominant of the two, he contended both girls had acted in unison and were equally culpable, killing both children solely for the pleasure and excitement of murder, adding both girls were 
one knew that what they did was wrong and what the result would be. <clears throat> On the fifth day of the trial, Norma testified in her own defense. She denied any culpability in the actual murder of either child, but admitted under cross-examination to having known Mary's pitching for murder, uh, for violence and her history of attacking children. And that the two had discussed attacking and killing four children of both genders. Questioned by Rudolph Lyons as to whether Mary had demonstrated to her how children could be killed, Norma nodded. She then conceded that as Mary had begun to attack and strangle Brian Howe, she had failed to alert a group of boys playing in the vicinity, stating she had failed to do so as I did not know what was going to happen in the first place. She had stopped hurting him for a bit when the boys were, were near the concrete block. Question as to her own role in the murder, Norma says she had never touched the child. Following the conclusion of Norma's testimony on the, on, the, on the 12th of December, Mary testified in her own defense. Her testimony lasted for almost four hours con um, conclusion on the 13th of December and was briefly adjourned on one occasion when she, was, she began crying in a, in a policewoman's arms. She denied her co-defendant's accusation, insisting that although she had observed the body of Martin Brown at St. Margaret's Road, she herself had never harmed the child, and that she and Norma had later asked the boy's mother to review his body as the two were daring each other, and one of us did not want to be a chicken. Mary also conceded she had divulged to others her knowledge of Martin's death could get Norma put straight away. Question with regards to the death of Brian Howard, Mary claimed that Norma had been the individual who had strangled the child as she herself was just standing and looking. I couldn't move. It was as if some glue was pulling us down. Mary then alleged Norma had encouraged Brian to lie down if he wanted some sweets. That's how they got him. Yep. Telling him, you got to lay down for the lady to come with the sweets before proceeding to strangle him with her bare hands as she herself unsuccessfully attempted to prevent the attack. Mary further stated she could determine the level of force Norma had exhibited because her fingertips and nails were going white. And again, and again conceded she had failed to inform authorities of her knowledge of Norma's actions out of both fear and misguided sense of loyalty. Norma's mother, Catherine, then testified that several months prior to the murder of Brian Howard, she and her husband had discovered Mary's attempting to strangle Norma's younger sister, Susan, and that she had only released her grip on the daughter's throat after her husband had punched Mary in the shoulder. A child psychiatrist named Ian Fraser then testified that Norma's mental age was eight years and 10 months, and that although her capacity for knowing right from wrong was limited, she was capable of appreciating the cr criminality of the act she was accused of committing. On the 13th of December, Norma's defense counsel, R.P. Smith, delivered his closing arguments to the jury. Smith emphasized that although both, both girls were on trial together, no real evidence existed against his crime, and the only evidence against Norma was Mary's accusation of her. Smith implored the jurors to suppress feelings of outrage and malice and dispel any idea that both little girls paid for the actions of 
of one of them. Harvey Robinson then delivered his closing argument on behalf of Mary. Robinson initiated broken background and dysfunction of family and the blur between fantasy and reality in her mind. Robinson also referenced the testimony of Dr. David Westbury, who had testified on behalf of the defense. He had interviewed Mary on several occasions prior to the trial and had formed a definite view the child suffered from a serious personality disorder in which he classified as a retarded development of her mind and that this had been caused by both genetic and environmental factors. The abnormality Westbury had contended had applied, excuse me, had impaired Mary's actual responsibility of her death. Referencing the note both girls had left in the nursery after the murder of Martin Brown, Robinson stated that notes proved the crimes were a childish fantasy and in Mary's case were written to attract attention to herself. In a closing argument, Rudolph Lyons described the case as a maricab and grotesque one in which Mary clearly the more domineering of the two despite being the younger girl, wielding a very compelling influence, reminiscent of the fictional, I have no idea what that is, Serengali over Norman. Um, I have no idea, being honest. Whom he concluded was of subnormal intelligence, stating, I forecast to you that the younger child, although two years and two months younger than the other, was nevertheless a clever and more domineering personality. Highlighting the numerous lies Mary had told the police and caught a light, Lyons further remarked of Mary's lack of remorse and her high de degree of cunning. Okay, so, the trial lasted nine days. On the 17th of December, the jury retired to consider their verdict and would deliberate for three hours and 25 minutes before reaching their verdict. Mary Bell was cleared... Wait, what? Mary Bell was cleared of murder but convicted of the manslaughter of both boys on the grounds of diminished responsibility. The fuck? <coughs> You, you just to make myself make it clear, you said Mary was diminished of murder. Um, Mary was killed of murder, but convicted of manslaughter of both boys on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Okay. You want to leave that for the for the closing of the of this um, particular podcast? No, because I I need to get this out. <laughs> how how is it that we all know she killed the kids, okay, but yet she's not charged with murder, and then like what what's the point? You know, of saying, well, you're, you didn't do murder, but we're going to put it down to manslaughter instead with the fact that you technically were not responsible for your actions, 
that's basically like telling a kid, yeah, you stole, you know, from, you know, I, I, I just can't. I, I, mm. <laughs> okay, so should I I'll try to finish this? Yeah, go ahead. Norma Bell was acquitted on all charges. Wait, what? Norma Bell was acquitted of all charges. Wait, how do you go and you participate in somebody's murder and you're cleared of it? And the, the gray fibers were from her dress skirt, whatever you... Exactly. So how is it that... That's evidence that she was there during right. the on whole both, thing. On both children. On both children. Upon hearing the judge's verdict, Norma clapped her hands in excitement, whereas Mary burst into tears as mother and grandmother also wept. Passing sentence, Judge Cusack described Dahl as a dangerous individual, well, married, um, adding she posed a very grave risk to other children and that steps must be taken to protect the public from her. She was sentenced to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, effectively an indefinite sentence of imprisonment. Um, Bell was initially detained in Durham Remand home before being transferred to a second remand home in South Norway. She was then transferred to Red Bank Secure Unit, a young offenders institution in, I don't know the name of that place, Newton Willows, in early 1969. She was the only female among approximately 24 inmates. Robert later claimed that she was sexually abused by a member of the staff and several inmates while incarcerated at this facility. Claiming the sexual abuse began when she was age 13. In November 1973, at age 16, she was transferred to a secure wing of HM prison style in Shire. Shire. Reportedly, Bell resented her transfer to this facility, and while incarcerated at, at HM prison style, Bell unsuccessfully appealed for parole. In June 1976, Bell was transferred to Moore Court Open Prison, where she undertook a secretarial course. 15 months later, in September 1977, Bell, alone, me, Bell again made national headlines when she and another inmate, Annette Priest, briefly escaped from their open prison. Both escaped spent several days in the company of two young men in Blackpool, visiting the amusements and sleeping in various local hotels, where Bell used to ally, ally Mary Robinson, excuse me, where Bell used the the alias Mary Robinson before the two escaped parted company. Bell was arrested at the Derbyshire home of one of the men, um, Cleve Shirtcliffe, on the 13th of September, hiring by the state, by this stage, dyed her hair blonde in an effort to disguise her identity. She was returned to custody that evening. Priest was arrested in Leeds days later. Bell's penalty for after coming or escaping, what was a loss of prison privilege for 28 days. In June 1979, the Home Office 
announced the decision to transfer Mary Bell to HM Prison, Ascam, Grange, an open category prison in the village of Ascam Richards, in efforts to prepare her for her eventual release into society, which was planned for the following year. Beginning in November 1979, Bell worked first as a secretary, then as a Richards at a cafe in New York, Mr. Under supervision guidelines and efforts to prepare her for eventual release. Bell was released from HM Prison Ascam Grange in May 1980 at the age of 23. So, murder, 10 years prison sentence? 11 maybe? Oh, excuse me. Having served almost 11 and a half years in custody. Remember, give her her half. Give her her half. Yeah, you can't forget the half. You know? Never mind the fact that, you know, she took two lives that did not even make it up to, you know, 11 and a half. Right. Well, if you're not upset yet, you will be You will be soon. Oh, excuse me. What are you throwing now? She was, she was granted anonymity, including a new name. Oh. Allowing her to start a new life elsewhere in the country under an assumed identity. Upon her release, a spokesman is quoted as saying, Belle wishes to be given a chance to live a normal life, to be left alone. Four years, <laughs> God, God. No, 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 go ahead, finish. Okay. Four years after her release from custody on the 25th of May, 1984, Belle gave birth to a daughter. Oh, dear God. Yep. This was proved to her only, um, to be her only child. Her daughter knew nothing of her mother's past until 1998, when reporters discovered Belle's then current location in a resort town on the Sussex coast where both had been living for approximately 18 months. The media revelation forced Belle and her 14-year-old daughter to leave their homes and be driven to a safe house by undercover officers. Both mother and daughter later relocated to another part of the United Kingdom. Belle was allegedly returned to Tenzin on several occasions in the years following her release. She was also alleged to have lived in this location for a time. The right for anonymity granted to Bell's daughter following her birth was originally only extended until she had reached the age of 18. <clears throat> However, on the 21st of May 2003, Bell won a high court battle to have her own anonymity and that of her daughter extended for life. This order was approved by Dame Elizabeth Butler Floss and was later updated to include Bell's granddaughter, born in Gen January 20 2009 who is referred to as Z. The order also permits the divulging of any suspects of their lives which may identify them. In 1998, Bell um, collaborated with author Gitta Serini to, prove, to provide an account of her life before and after her crimes for Serini's 1998 book, Cries Unheard, The Story of Mary Bell. Within this book, Bell details the abuse she suffered as a child at the hands of her prostitute mother, whom Bell describes as a dominatrix, and she alleges several of her 
her mother's clients. Other interviews, others interviewed our relatives, friends, and professionals who knew her before and during and after the imprisonment. Um, Bella's current whereabouts are unknown and remain protected by the 2003 High Court order. According to Serene, Bell does not claim she was wrongfully convicted and freely admits to the abuse she suffered as a child does not excuse her crimes. That is the end of my case. So, uh, what do you think? She gets full immunity after 10 and 11 and a half years in jail. So what was the point of waiving the rights when the court was, when the case, you know, not the case, when the trial first started, if you're going to give her immunity so she can live a freaking normal life when she got out? Made no damn sense now. The other thing is, how many child killers have done way more years than that? You know, like, come on, she escaped, you know, she, that should have packed on some years right there. Not, Correct. not deducted, you know. Correct. <sighs> My thing is, I get it, she's a kid, and I get that, but at the end of the day, she took two lives that were way younger than her. You know, she tried kill, um, strangulation on three other kids who most likely never reported this incident. Right. So, yet, she gets to go and live lolly dolly up on the, you know, hills. Mm -hmm. Yet, these two kids who died by her doing, okay will never go and see what it is to be 11 and a half, will never get to be a parent, will never get to know what it is to have another Christmas, Thanksgiving, you know, so forth and so forth. It's not... I don't find the fairness in it, and I think... Yeah, I think, I think they need to work on that um, judicial system. Oh yeah, I mean, 100%. And here's another case that, um, sorry, my dogs are acting up. Um, here's another case that when the three people, that the three young kids that were strangulated by her that turned purple, if they would have done something more than just, hey, don't do that no more. Mm -hmm. And I'm a person that I fully believe in um, what's it called? Um, scared straight. Yep. You know, show her the inside of a jail. Lock it in for a couple seconds. See, you know, see how she likes that. You know, um, but I think just dismissing that gave her the, the thing like, if I could do that, I wonder what else I could do. You know, and yeah, she killed too. And the person that got away with it, um, Norma. Yeah. I believe 100% that she said, listen, my hands are getting tired. Um, finish it. And she finished it because her uh, fibers were in on both bodies. <coughs> you, would not, you would not find fibers if you, if you were standing two feet away. 
Yeah. And the thing is, um, not that I know of, it's not from a personal account, but I'm going to say, so don't take it there, um, but it's something I've heard on a lot of documentaries where they do say the longest, the more intense murder is a strangulation murder because you're having to use all your force, all your weight to apply pressure to, on contrast to this other person's body. Now, if the person is moving and trying to push you away from them, that's added stress. And for you to stay there for a good three to five minutes, those three to five minutes at that point seem like an hour to more. Okay, it does not feel that quick at that moment. It feels like it's taking forever just to go and have them, you know, remotely at least unconscious. So, like I said, once again, this is not coming from my own personal experience. It's just something I, you know, I've heard and seen on the TV when reading about documentaries and everything like that. So. And I've also, I've also heard that if you're going to try to strangle someone, strangle them from behind. Because you won't have the mix of hands to try to be, yeah. you know. Um, it, you you have an easier way. It's never easy to strangle anybody. I'm not trying to say it's easy, but you won't have to fend off the hands and the feet. Yeah, kicking, clawing, scratching, whatever they had to do to try to get you off of them. So yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was another doozy. Yes, that was. You know, um. I don't even know what to say. Like, it has just been one hit after hit after hit after hit after hit. Um, we yeah. went from Teacup to Skylar, you know, um, to now Miss Bell and her her psychotic breaks. I'm going to say it like that, just to be nice. Just yeah. to be nice, because what I want to say to her... It's not, it's not nice to say to a child. Okay, yeah. and at the moment of the crime, she was a child. So I will, I will be a mom and not say what I really want to say as a, as a human being. Okay, I'm gonna say it that way. <laughs> uh, I mean, I will say she is an adult now. Yeah. <laughs> but at the time of the crimes, I, you know, I'm like, slap. <laughs> sorry sorry yeah. if that slap was a little too loud. But I just only yeah. hit my hand, I promise. I only hit my hand. But yeah. But like, but yeah. She, just, she needed a really good can of whoop. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, and this was early, you know, 1960s, where, let, let's be serious. That was that was the right way to punish a child. Exactly. It was opening a can of whoop. Get me the switch from the tree. I want a right. green one, not a brown one. Right. Compared to now that if you raise your hand at your child, there's a problem. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, you know. And I only know by the horrors of my parents that told me 
and they were not, you know, they were, of course, Puerto Rican. And yeah, you see that branch over there, that green one, that right there in the middle? Give me that one. <laughs> All the kitchen spoon, or, you know, I won't, I won't keep mentioning stuff, I won't, you know, because now it's considered um, child abuse. True. It's not like they could do anything about it at the moment. <laughs> yeah, not after 60 some odd years. All evidence has dissipated. Yeah. Forget that. My grandparents are all dead. So that's okay. True. <laughs> all right, guys. Um, That's all I got to say about Miss Bell. I'm done. Um, so if you guys want to drop a comment to us or mention a case you guys want to hear about, please leave us um, an email at murderousintentions21 at gmail.com or you can Instagram us at murderous underscore intention underscore podcast and of course you can always tweet us at Am I True Cry Podcast? All right, guys. Well, that was it for this lovely episode. Case number one. Yeah. And now we're going to go to your double feature. So if you're cleaning the house, this is like the perfect thing to listen to while you're doing it. You know, you got this one and now you got the other one. All right, guys. Bye for right now. <laughs> All right, guys. See you later.